0: You are now tuned in, turned on, and dropping into the Hospital Medicine Podcast with your host, Dr. Gil Peratt. We are talking red blood cell transfusions, part three, and today will be solely devoted to secondary iron overload. While rarely started by a hospitalist and almost never chronically managed by hospitalists, we do need to understand iron chelating therapy. We see these patients because they are the chronically ill or the repeatedly ill. Those unlucky people that get repeat transfusions of pac red blood cells, this will not be a totally comprehensive review of the topic of secondary iron overload and is more of an introduction of the minimum us hospitalists have to know. I've read sources where secondary iron overload also has been referred to as iatrogenic iron overload as well as transfusion-induced hemochromatosis, which seem to also be very reasonable ways to describe the problem. So given that I am now giving a third consecutive podcast on packed red blood cell transfusions, it may be a good moment to pause and talk honestly about blood consent forms. That might be the hardest consent form in the hospital, in my opinion, When you put in a central line, you can pretty much nail down more than 95% of the adverse consequences or possibilities that may happen in just a few minutes of talking with the patient. But where do you start with blood? There are just too many possibilities of adverse events that a genuine discussion would really take more than a couple hours with each single patient. It's a bit unfair, in my opinion, for the doctor to be solely responsible for this Perhaps JCO or Leapfrog or CMS or some lawyer association can make a single page that they feel is important for the patient to know about. The patient can then read it, often as they are vomiting or briskly pooping blood, and then ask questions about it. But I feel it is so unfair to expect for even a quarter of possibilities of potential adverse outcomes to be discussed on blood consent forms in less than a few hours of discussion with each patient. Often it seems Patients mostly want to know if they're going to get AIDS or not, and that's pretty much the only thing we can assure them they are extraordinarily unlikely to get. These consents are a source of frustration for many, and hopefully a more uniform way of doing them will be created someday soon, though I doubt it. Today I will discuss one of those topics that most docs probably do not dive into when they are consenting for blood. I've observed, as have probably most of you, both iron overload as well as the need to recognize and manage side effects, more accurately worded as toxicities, of the chelators used in treatment. If you don't recognize those side effects, you'll spend time and money looking for other causes when the answer is right in front of you. Been there when I first started seeing these drugs used more often. I don't often quote the Bible, but let us start with Proverbs twenty-seven, seventeen: As iron sharpens iron, so a friend sharpens a friend. So, my podcast listening friends, I hope to sharpen you just as my mind gets sharpened preparing these podcasts. Let's first review some basics. Like everything organic, red blood cells have a lifespan, and that includes transfused cells. When reticuloendothelial macrophages phagocytose red blood cells, iron is freed from heme. Overwhelm those macrophages with too many transfusions, and those poor macrophages just can't retain the iron. The iron then travels into the plasma. Other areas of the body try to store away that traveling excess iron, and one such area is the liver. Our liver, Thankfully, stores iron normally after our own red blood cells are removed from circulation in usual conditions about every 120 days. That iron is later reused for the production of new red blood cells in the bone marrow. When there is way too much iron around, it damages the hepatocytes and causes cirrhosis. The same apoptosis and necrosis happening to iron overloaded liver cells also happens to cardiac cells when the heart starts storing the iron. I suspect a fair number of you have seen iron-induced cardiomyopathy, either from transfusion-induced disease or, more likely, hemochromatosis. Speaking of this specific cardiac issue, let me quote page 807 from the November 2007 Cleveland Clinic Journal of Medicine, where they say this, Congestive heart failure is the most common cause of death in patients with thalassemia as chronic accumulation of iron due to regular blood transfusions leads to biventricular systolic dysfunction and death at a very early age. The quantity of iron deposited in the heart is a key determinant of outcome. Early diagnosis and intensive chelation of the cardiac iron can avert heart failure and its fatal outcome So a well-put quote. And then there's also the endocrine system that can get hit when iron deposition happens in the pancreas cells and the anterior pituitary cells. Before long, it's not just about an organ or two, but as you can predict or may have witnessed, the person actually dies. This secondary iron overload population has a specific problem that makes them different from those with genetic hemochromatosis. That problem is anemia. Therefore, unlike hemochromatosis patients, phlebotomy is not going to be an answer for those with secondary iron overload from transfusions. So we give drugs to excrete iron called iron chelators. Almost all doctors know at least a little about IV or subcutaneous deferoxamine. And we are also learning about the easier-to-administer oral chelator that is replacing it as a first-line choice. And that is called, and bear with me, Deferazerax, which most call by the easier-to-say brand name XJ. I don't like using brand names over generics, but we will have to refer to it as XJ since I can't pronounce the generic. So if you are a Novartis drug rep, you are welcome. It is also a good time to report that I have no conflicts of interest on this topic or any topic so far that I've talked about. Well, who gets chelators and when? Think of iron chelators as a condom for transfusion patients. Not always ideal and fun, but you may regret it if you don't use it. I will quote the January 13, 2011 New England Journal of Medicine article that was titled, Iron Chelating Therapy for Transfusional Iron Overload. And they say, Ideally, iron chelating therapy should be initiated prophylactically before clinically significant iron accumulation has occurred. Treatment should begin when patients have received between 10 and 20 red blood cell transfusions. And they also say, chelation therapy may not be needed in patients with myelodysplasia or other acquired refractory anemias who have an estimated survival of less than one year. Again, a point worth emphasizing, this really is not an end-of-life care treatment to be using iron chelators. As a quick side note, I was reading the January 2001 Seminars in Hematology article titled, Consensus Document for Transfusion-Related Overload, in which it is pointed out that you simply can't completely rely on ferritin levels in assessing iron overload because of the false elevations from inflammation as an acute phase reactant, which makes sense and is a good thing to know. But what really struck me is how quickly things change, and often for the better. In 2001, they were talking about liver biopsies as the routine way to quantify iron concentrations doing that every year or so. Nowadays, many measure iron concentrations non-invasively by special T2 cardiac MRI sequences. There is also a new tissue Doppler echocardiography test that is good at quantifying cardiac iron, and that's even cheaper than the MRI. It hasn't necessarily replaced all liver biopsies, as some patients get iron buildup in the liver and not the heart, and vice versa. Either way you look at it, Technology seems to be decreasing the need for invasive testing, which is great. Many of us will probably see chelation mostly used in sickle cell disease. Not everybody, because in Colorado, where we're at a pretty high altitude, we actually don't see a whole lot of sickle cell disease because those patients have either moved away or died at an early age. But other diseases like thalassemia major and acquired anemias are among several other possibilities that make chelation mandatory. So let's say a patient taking deferoxamine mentions they're having trouble lately with hearing or vision. It's likely the chelator. Got unexplained pulmonary complaints on deferoxamine? Maybe it's pulmonary toxicity from the drug. Let's say a patient on oral XJ presents with renal insufficiency or develops it while on your hospital service. Well, it turns out xj increases creatinine in a whopping 38% of patients, so you better know that fact. I had a patient a few months ago where it was more than moderately affecting the kidneys, and you need to watch for the potentially fatal acute renal failure or chronic renal failure in these patients. A mild increase in creatinine isn't a major concern in these patients, since it usually stabilizes, but be watchful for those whose creatinine keeps on rising. Hepatic failure can also happen. How important is hepatic and renal failure in the population taking XJ? Important enough that these patients need monthly, yes, monthly serum creatinine and liver function tests. Another rare but serious side effect of XJ we need to know about is agranulocytosis. I would like to define a granulocytosis. An acute disease marked by deficit or absolute lack of granulocytic white blood cells, which are neutrophils, basophils, and eosinophils. It may occur in some leukemias or after exposure to certain drugs or radiation. Now, please note granulocytic white blood cells include basophils and eosinophils, even though most just tend to think about neutrophils. Again, agranulocytosis is another possible serious consequence of XJ to be on the lookout for. So we can all be informed and up to the minute as possible. I would like to briefly mention a third iron chelator. The journal Pharmacy and Therapeutics in November 2011, last month on page 705, mentions that a drug generically called deferiprone. Deferaprox as the brand name, was approved under the FDA's Accelerated Approval Program. They state, it's the first FDA-approved treatment for iron overload since 2005. As far as I can tell, it is a second-line option at the moment. DeferProne was specifically approved to treat iron overload resulting from blood transfusions in patients with thalassemia who have responded inadequately to previous chelation therapy. They are starting to study it in patients with sickle cell disease. The November 23, 2011 JAMA, Journal of American Medical Association, on page 2207, acknowledged the FDA's actions were controversial in regards to their October 2011 approval of Diferoprone, stating, and I'll quote them, The consumer watchdog organization called Public Citizen argued against approval of Diferoprone Citing inadequate safety and efficacy data. In a statement, the organization noted the manufacturer of Deferprone has failed to conduct a randomized trial that the FDA said was needed when it denied approval of the drug in 2009. And that's the end of the quote. So, safety and efficacy are still concerns, as with many new drugs and many old drugs for that matter agranulocytosis also seems to be one of deferiprone's issues, and CBC monitoring is required. And I think that ties nicely into a topic of debate in regards to iron chelating in general that I think is important to acknowledge. I, like many, am always a bit frustrated when there is not outcomes data when a drug is released. That is particularly the case when there are significant toxicities associated with a drug or, as in this case, an entire drug class. For those of you fond of debates and arguments, here's one for you. In the letters and correspondence section of the New England Journal of Medicine this year, April 14, 2011, a physician from Yale University School of Medicine named Dr. Lawrence Solomon expressed his frustration with the use of iron chelators in certain scenarios. Dr. Solomon acknowledge that autopsy studies in sickle cell patients show cirrhosis about 11% of the time in iron overload in 7% of DC's patients, but notes that other causes of cirrhosis were not ruled out. That's one of the points he tries to make, and then he states, and I'll quote him, "...there is no evidence that treatment of iron overload in sickle cell disease decreases morbidity or prolongs survival." thus lowering tissue iron levels is not an end unto itself. Rather, data are lacking to establish that iron overload in sickle cell disease is of clinical significance. And that's the end of the quote by Dr. Solomon. Dr. Gary Brittenham from Columbia University College of Physicians and Surgeons replies to Dr. Solomon, initially and politely acknowledging the uncertainty. Dr. Brittenham then aggressively defends chelation by stating, I'll quote him, the available data seem insufficient to justify a higher body iron threshold for iron chelating therapy. No evidence suggests that failure to treat transfusional iron overload in patients with sickle cell disease is safe, end quote, which is a good point since I don't think most of us think iron overload is a good state of health. Also, just because it hasn't been proven in sickle cell disease chelating has been of major benefit in thalassemia. It prolongs survival in that population. It is one of the reasons we are seeing more adult patients with severe thalassemias since they survive the pediatric care years. However, outcomes data really should be demanded for therapies costing up to $53,000 a year, and sickle cell disease requiring repeat transfusions is a big population using these chelators. I am not the world's expert on chelators or anything for that matter. What I do know about medicine is this. Despite the often fragmentary nature of medical evidence, we as medical professionals still need to be motivated to try and understand it. Even without great outcomes data on sickle cell disease, it doesn't change the fact that we still have to know about chelating therapy and its side effects since patients are getting these therapies whether you and I prescribe them or not. It just brings up one of the bigger concerns I have with the American healthcare system. This act first improve it later attitude or acceptance has always perturbed me, and multiple times we will later find out that we were totally unjustified in acting first. Just as preemptive war sometimes confused with the preventative war, it's not always the case that preemptive medicines prevent the potential of even a more harmful war the body must fight later. The story is still being written for medicines like iron chelators and certain populations like sickle cell disease. It's one of those things that makes science and medicine exciting to study. So not exactly a comprehensive review here of iron chelators, but hopefully enough to recognize and understand the issues we need to watch out for. After three podcasts on packed red blood cell transfusions and complications related to it, it is time to move on to other topics. Hopefully, I will come back to blood and give a part four and five since we still haven't even explored antibodies, volume overload, trolley, coagulation concerns with transfusion, and a bunch of other topics, but it will have to wait for another day. You're listening to Hospital Medicine Podcast with your host, Dr. Gil Peratt. Have a wonderful rest of the day.